At the heart of civilization's discontents is writing, authoritarian iteration, inscribing itself in the continuous unfolding of the world. Writing severs connections and solidifies the axioms of identity, solidity, and temporality. So starts Sasha Engel's microbook, Breaking the Alphabet, where he takes a hard look at the tyranny of the written word. Hello, hello, how are you? Welcome to another episode of the Hilaritas Podcast. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join me as we explore the vast world of iconic writer, psychedelic psychologist, rebel philosopher, and self-proclaimed agnostic mystic, Robert Anton Wilson. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcast for show notes, links, and past episodes. In our last regular episode, I discussed Peter Kropotkin with anarchist writer Wayne Price. In this episode, I discussed the tyranny of written word and breaking the alphabet with writer-philosopher Sasha Engel. Sasha Engel, welcome to the Laritas podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So you have this little book here, Breaking the Alphabet. Can you... Tell me a little about yourself and how you came to write this book. Yeah, sure. About two years ago, I was running a little journal here in Ireland, a literary journal called Structuris. And it was focusing on this sort of wave of experimental literature that was really, really pushing a lot of boundaries that's currently happening in the UK and in Ireland. There's a lot of people pushing boundaries, you know, not just in the sense that Topics are, are being breached that, that are still considered uncouth, if you will, but um, in the sense of formal, formal boundaries. So really what's on the page, the materiality of what's on the page. And a lot of that work that I was able to, to publish and really fortunate enough to publish came from authors that were doing asemic writing, which is a sort of a type of writing. It's kind of like uh, inspired by early Dada or French letterism experiments where the letter itself really becomes problematic and the the presence of the letter on the page really becomes a thing that is open to all sorts of artistic negotiations and there's a lot of publishers that are doing this or i noticed that there were a lot of publishers doing this um very innovative ones there's one in sweden called tim glassett and there's a few in the uk that are currently doing this and so as i was getting further and further into this sort of literary negotiation of what it means to really have letters on the page that sort of seemed to mesh really well with my own background in what goes under the term anarchism. I mean, it's really more of an umbrella term than anything else. Um, But this sort of anti-authoritarian approach that really no form of rule should be questioned, no form of authority should go unquestioned. One of the ways in which one questions authority is, of course, by written in, in the written form and by written letters. So it, what fascinated me about this, these asemic approaches is that there's, a, there's a, an attack or a negotiation, if you will, on the very level that written messages not only convey authoritative statements or not only convey authority, but they are a type of authority. They are a type of authoritarian approach 
two things to life uh, to the, and to the unfolding of, of life and the unfolding of, of gestures. And so between those two sort of approaches, between the asemic and the anarchic approach, it seemed to me that one can, one can go as far as questioning to what extent the written letter, and particularly the Latin alphabet, which is the one we all use in the Western Hemisphere, and which therefore enjoys a sort of a global you know, global sunspot, uh, global spot in the sunlight. Um, to what extent is the Latin, does the Latin alphabet prevent spontaneous gestures, uh, prevent sort of people from communicating in, in more meaningful ways? To what extent is the, are the, the marks that we leave on the page an implementation of marks that are left in our bodies and marks that are left in our minds? And so the, the idea to, to break that as a pattern to break the sentence structure, to break the word structure, to break letters came sort of as a, as a next step in that journey. That's, that was sort of the initial inspiration of, um, of breaking the alphabet. The other, the other thing that, that seemed to me to be relevant is that I have a background in political science and economics from uh, university times. There's the ways in which our politics, in which our systems of rule are written in letters, so there are economies that are implemented through letters, but there are also economies that come to play within letters themselves. For instance, uh, when, we, when we look at the, the very thing that I'm currently looking at, the computing machine uh, in all of its various forms, that's not just an economy that's implemented through letters, but that is a letter economy in and of itself. It's a Turing machine, right? It's that endless tape that has two or three signs on it, and they just endlessly repeat you know, depending on whether it's a binary or a ternary system. So you, you have, like, we're surrounded with, with letters and a lot of the assumptions, I think, of anti-authoritarian work or anti-authoritarian approaches, to me, seem to presuppose that there are things that we just need, there are things that can't be questioned, and the, the lettered uh, implementation of texts is one of those. Because we do need lettered implementations of text. We have to talk about things in, in, in certain ways. We have to write things down to a certain extent. So the idea really to me was to, to find out how far to push and what, what levers to use to push these patterns back as much as possible and to see if I could de-domesticate our body's responses to these sort of writings or, or ways in which, in which letters are inscribed all around us and, of course, inside us as well. So that's where the book came from. Gotcha. It's it, you mentioned how these things can't be questioned. It's it's to me almost like we don't even think about questioning them. It just doesn't even it didn't occur to me so much until we uh, we covered Marshall McLuhan on the podcast, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. There's there's uh, yeah. The Gutenberg Galaxy is a really interesting has a really interesting approach, or McLuhan has a really interesting approach because there is a sort of a it, it almost seems as though there's an acknowledgement, with very few exceptions, uh, Friedrich Kittler, for example, is one of those, um, with very few exceptions, there is a history of technology, but it frequently becomes a history of the applications of technology or the uses of technology. Technology, in this case, including books and written words and scrolls and what have you, naturally, so to speak, although I guess naturally is the wrong word there, um, unnaturally. So there's a, there's a history of, of these kinds of gadgets, of devices, but frequently it seems to me, and to a certain extent in McLuhan as well, 
this history becomes a history of human beings using these devices and not so much a questioning to what extent the devices make the human beings or to what extent the devices use human beings. So there, there's this, there's a sort of a, an assumption on, on the part of many anthropologically minded folks too, that human beings make themselves, you know, nature, nurture, that whole thing. Human beings make themselves to a certain extent, but to what extent our technologies make us is a question that we are now becoming aware of um, now that smartphones are, are a thing, you know, attention and their effect on attention spans is widely discussed. Um, but again, there's a sort of a, it seems to me that, that a lot of people are missing that this, the same must have been true for previous technologies, including, of course, the written letter itself. Um, and to what extent does the written letter change what is a human being? To what extent can there be a human being outside of the written letter? And to what extent is the human being just sort of something that we conjure up on the page? And, and again, this goes, this goes into the anti-authoritarian perspective, because if it is something that we conjure off of the page, then who gets to conjure it? And who gets to use which pages to conjure it? And how does it get written into the world off of the page? Mm. As you were speaking, the phrase that, that popped into my head that I hadn't thought of before is how we're prisoners of language. Or to take it a step further, prisoners of the phonetic alphabet and then the, the I'm thinking kind of from the McLuhan S perspective, the phonetic alphabet and then the, you know, the, the printing press and I don't know what you'd call it, but that standardized form of character and, and writing. In fact, you had a great phrase in, in your book. Uh, several actually but the one one of the ones that stuck out to me is autocorrect will keep it all under its watchful gaze it's like it's watching over us making sure we we fall in line that's that's fabulous yeah there's there's definitely a sort of um an, a growing awareness for for these kinds of things and of course now nowadays uh, you know this growing awareness that is coming on on the heels of the realization that people younger than you and me often no longer know how to write by hand right? right and so and and so the but this 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 begs two questions to me right not just one like there's the obvious one where it's like okay what kinds of freedoms what kinds of ways of thinking what kinds of creativities evaporate as we stop directly and materially engaging with the page i mean there's so much literature and and so much evidence that thinking on the page is is very much different to thinking, you know, just sort of, you know, the classical philosophy thing where you just sit at the beach and gaze longingly into the sun, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that sort of thing. But so that's that's sort of the first question. And a lot of the a lot of the anti-authoritarian folks that I'm in, in touch with seem to be seem to be zeroing in really on this question. And of and educators, of course, too, are zeroing in on this question. How much hyper attention versus deep attention how how many kinds of sort of you know what changes does this does this bring in cognition and how many of these changes are good how many of these changes are bad how many of these changes in other words how many of these changes sort of close in walls and how many of those break down walls but it seems to me that that's only one of the questions because the other thing what we're sort of doing sort of as a backhand is that by asserting that there's a that there is freedom and creativity in thinking on the page and in, in handwriting, we're narrowing the notion of freedom and, and creativity to a notion of handwriting. So we're saying, mm -hmm. 
smartphone bad, handwriting good, which, you know, I'm not questioning that there's a lot of evidence that smartphone is bad and handwriting is good. But to what extent then, if we are, if, if we do say that handwriting is a technology itself, then are we just playing out one technology for another technology and are simply running into this sort of ultra reactionary trap of saying, okay, the technology that we've had for 5,000 years is better than the tech or two and a half thousand years, whatever the exact number is for the current alphabet, it's probably about two and a half thousand years. But to what extent are we simply saying, okay, this is older, therefore it's better? Hmm. And what's the answer? Well, the answer would be to question both, right? The answer would be to sort of, or, or not, I mean, what, what do we even say the answer, right? No. Um, but the, the question, the next the sort of follow-up question to that, for me anyway, would be to question both and to say, okay, so what happens if we do give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, maybe there is something more human about handwriting, direct materiality on the page, direct usage of my hands, than swiping with autocorrect. Let's, you know, if we give that sort of the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, maybe there's something to it because it does intuitively to me as well, like I'm not immune to this, right? To me as well, intuitively, it does feel like there is more, it, it feels more real. It feels more material to, to write by hand. Okay, so we do this. So then the next question becomes, if we follow this trace back and say the, the handwritten Latin alphabet is closer to what it is like to be a human being mm -hmm. than swiping on the smartphone. Then the next question is, what about the Latin alphabet's predecessor? What about the Greek phonetic alphabet? Is that closer to being a human being? And philosophically speaking, probably yes, because of course the first definition of the human being is in Greek, which is presumably relevant, you know, but there's a lot of other questions there too. Problem with that, Okay, so we've stepped back from the Latin alphabet to the Greek alphabet. What's next? We go back one step further, 800 BC, the Greeks take over the Phoenician alphabet. So if we go to ancient Phoenicia and say, is that closer to being a human being? It's lacking vowels, it's consonants, or there's one or two in there, but essentially it's a consonantal script. All right. So we've got Phoenician, but then that gets us back further. That gets us back to Proto-Sinaitic. And that ultimately gets us back to Egyptian hieroglyphs. And it's, it's an interesting, this is a, an interesting gesture because it's a very classical one. Um, a lot of, a lot of the, the 18th century European writing about, you know, that sort of enlightenment writing about uh, hieroglyphs uh, compares them to the Chinese script and says that the characteristics of both are, are, um, are so different from our own phonetic alphabet in that these these signs are symbols. They're they're uh, they have multiple meanings. They they're imbued with a sort of secret, you know, with a sort of hermetic meaning as well as a you know as a, as well as the ostensible meaning that they have on the page. And there are the wildest uh, the wildest most amazing theories in the 18th century about what hieroglyphs mean prior to the prosaic deciphering um, that happened there as well about a hundred years after. And so. The characteristics then, if we are following this sort of path, and if our guiding question is still, what is it like to be human, or how does how how can we get to a point where our own humanness, our own being in flesh and blood becomes something that we can directly and immediately express on the page, 
if we sort of follow that as a structural analysis, and if we say, okay, we've got hieroglyphs now, that's the earliest one, that must be the closest one. Well, then the characteristics of hieroglyphs, sort of broadly speaking, I mean, not all hieroglyphs have all these characteristics, but broadly speaking, the characteristics of hieroglyphs are that they have multiple meanings, that there are signs as well as symbols, and that they essentially proliferate. You know, the, the old kingdom, some 3000 BC, had, I want to say about 100 or 150, I don't know the exact number, but the new kingdom toward the end, you know, the kingdom that the Persians invaded some two and a half thousand years later, had thousands of hieroglyphs, and they kept inventing new ones. So if we are, if we're, if we're following this from the perspective that an earlier manifestation of the alphabet, an earlier manifestation of this technology gets us closer to the originator of that technology, then having multiple meanings, sort of going back and forth between a mystical hidden meaning and an ostensible meaning, signs and symbols, if you will, and proliferation are human characteristics. Mm. And that sort of gets us into a whole host of new questions, but I feel like this that at least gets us a little closer to asking the right ones uh, instead, of, instead of sort of asserting somewhat monomanically that handwriting the Latin alphabet will save us all, um, you know, bring us into a future of enlightened democratic citizenry. Instead of, instead of asking that kind of question, at least this sort of gets us asking about what, it, what does it mean to write? What does it mean to be written? What does it mean to write yourself? What does it mean to write on yourself and about yourself? So what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to implement a human being in, in quotation marks? Oh, gotcha. I think I might have to sit with that for a while, but there's a certain fluidity that's available to us if we start unpacking this and going back in time and 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 then as we get closer and closer to a uh, current day type that's very structured right and you use the the phrase authoritarian iteration can you say a little about that unpack that phrase for us yeah of course and it's it sort of we can we can sort of start there at the at the point where we just left off just to follow that train of thought, because the guiding question that sort of led us back to the hieroglyphs and led us back to this idea of multiple meanings, of, um, of proliferation, of hermetic meanings, as opposed to ostensible ones, the guiding question there is, what does it mean to be a human being? How do we write humans? Mm. And so what we do when we ask that question, it seems to me, is we, we really ask, not a what is question, but a how do we implement question. So when we ask, what is it to be a human being? We're not asking ourselves, how can I define a human being? It's more of, an, it's more of a question that's sort of closer to ethics or politics or economics, if you will. Uh, it's a question of how, am, how can I be a human being? How am I a human being? How are we as human beings going to go forward implementing what we think it is like to be a human being. You know, there's, there's all this age-old stuff. Is a human being an individual? Is it part of a family? Is it part of a collectivity? That's just one of the many dimensions. And so writing letters on the page runs parallel to, and I think is the same mechanism as writing entities into the world. In both cases, 
you have a not necessarily a definition, but a, a, a sort of a mandatory shape that whatever you are writing has to take. So in order to be legible, letters have to have a certain type of certain type of shape, right? So this R needs to be the same R as that R, and this F needs to be the same F as that F. But conversely, this tree is the same tree as that tree, and this human being, it has to be recognizably the same human being as that other human being and as that third human being in order to have a meaningful range of responses to the question, what is a human being? And so the what I'm really curious about is the is this homology, is this structural set, the structural similarity in the set of gestures that lead us to write letters on pages and the set of gestures that lead us to recognize and I think to, to a significant extent to write entities into the world. So by by writing, uh, but you know, by making certain types of dashes onto the page, I have a certain amount of creative leeway. Of course, my handwriting will always be different from anybody else's. But this leeway comes with the condition that the letters have to remain legible. And therefore, the core appearance of these letters has to always be the same within a certain range. The same applies to entities that are in the world. A tree has to be or a specific kind of tree. Obviously, there's multiple kinds of trees, right? But the specific kind of tree will have to be, will have to fulfill certain characteristics, even if its own branches and, and, and shapes and what have you are wildly uh, growing all over the place, they will still have to follow a specific, uh, specific set of lines, a specific set of shapes, a specific set of gestures in order to be recognizable as that tree. And I think that the same applies to human beings. And I think that at the point where it applies to human beings, it becomes an instrument of authoritarianism because it it stops being descriptive and becomes prescriptive. If it ever was descriptive, right? Because the whole point about letters is that their gestures, the gestures that lead to them, written letters, that is, uh, that the set of gestures that leads to them is also a prescriptive rather than a descriptive set. And so it seems to me that the same mechanism by which legibility is set up as a standard for letters is the mechanism by which legibility is set up for anything else in the world. You read rooms, you read situations, you read sceneries and landscapes and what have you. Um, and you read them, I think, in, with, the, with much the same eye as you do letters on the page. You have to find out where the letter starts and ends, same way that you have to find out where this particular object starts and ends, which means you have to find out which characteristics the object in question has, same as you have to find out which gestures go into writing the letters. And so as you go along, you define what's on the page, you define what's in front of you, and you define yourself. And so the, the terminology authoritarian iteration comes, the iteration part marks that in each written letter, there are two aspects. There's the deviation where I write differently from everyone else. And there's the identity where the letters have to be legible. So they are the same. 
So instead of saying the letter is repeated, I say that it's iterated because in each iteration it's slightly different, but it uh. nonetheless remains ultimately the same. And so, just as the letters are iterated, so are the trees, and so are the cows, and so are the human beings, in the sense that, you know, a tree is a tree is a tree when it stops being this wild growth and becomes so many units of lumber. And the same way uh, a cow is a cow is a cow when it stops being this wild, well, I guess cows have never really been wild, but, you know, animal, animal kind of beings stop being this kind of wild. Uh, presence and become so many units of cattle uh, toward the slaughterhouse. And in the same way, human beings then stop being, you know, they become iterated as well. We all become iterated when we stop being sort of wild or undomesticated individuals or, uh, you know, egos really um, sort of egoistic unfoldings, if, if you will. It's kind of a, a gray area with the terminology there. It gets a little hazy. But ultimately, we sort of stop we become domesticated, we become persons with passports and bank accounts, and we become job, job holders and property owners and what have you. And so we become all the same, right? We get iterated um, right. In, in much the same ways as, as letters and animals and, and plants are. And this, of course, uh, requires uh, implementation mechanisms. Um, it requires those who do the domesticating. And that's why it's authoritarian. Because the iteration itself is a mechanism, is not necessarily a mechanism that is, that is in itself a mechanism of rule. It can also be a mechanism of recognition, as in the way that legibility is, of course, a, a presupposition of liberation as well as, um, you know, as, well as domestication. Um, but it becomes authoritarian, or it is, in the vast majority of cases, is authoritarian in that the standards by which I am legible are almost never my own. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. always, they're always set by an institution uh, or an entity. And there, there's something that comes up for me about not only how it, it limits us and constricts us, but it also just generifies us, makes us generic and homogenous and, and really imposing that, that structure that's not only limiting, but boring in a way yeah yeah absolutely absolutely but the the problem of course is that um in order to tackle this or in order to sort of to to give this an anti-authoritarian twist one can't simply say okay cool let's get rid of all writing um because illegibility or or, or illiteracy in fact as as anyone who is illiterate will know illiteracy makes it even worse if you're illiterate you are subject to much harsher mechanisms or, or, or perhaps are subject to, to the same mechanisms that I'm subject to, but I get to defend myself because I can write and I can, you know, I can get people, I can write to people, you know, lawyers and what have you that are, that are offering me the defense mechanisms that the society offers, however incomplete those might be. So illiteracy wouldn't be the way forward. You know, there's a sort of a very classical gesture by which, by which a lot of philosophers uh, in, in the sort of the really, the really big names, you know, Aristotle and what have you, the really big names have made this gesture since the pretty much the inception of philosophical thinking, Western philosophical thinking, that is, of course, uh, have made this gesture where writing is a deficient aberration from speech, from verbal speech. 
And verbal speech is a somewhat deficient aberration from thought. The idea, of course, is, is this is something that we all intuit. I feel like we all sort of intuitively have this idea. You know, it's more the conversation that we're having at the moment is more personal, more, you know, more direct, more intimate than a, a written um, conversation that one might have. It's sort of an intuitive feeling that the, that, that is the case. And, and again, much like the much like the way that the that the concept of iteration tries to express that there is something to legibility, that there is something that is necessary about this kind of communication. So I don't want to just throw out the baby with the bathwater and simply say, okay, we need to all write to each other, and nobody needs to have any kinds of face-to-face conversations. That would be terrible, and that would in fact be the exact opposite of what I'm looking for. Once you assert that speech is a deficient form of thought and writing is a deficient form of speech, which seems like that seems to be the trajectory of when you say, okay, the way that things are written into the world makes us generic and makes us boring and what have you. There's a classical gesture that, that says, yeah, absolutely. And that's why we need to stop writing to each other. And that's why we need to only talk to each other. And that's why we really only would only be complete and social and full human beings if we telepathically communicated our our thoughts to each other directly. But that gesture in turn is an authoritarian one because in order to think to each other, we have to think to each other in an idiom that each of us understands. In Mm. other words, we have to make our innermost thoughts accessible and legible, which is to say, we have to speak our innermost thoughts, right? We, we have to move, the move from thought to speech is a necessary one. Well, but then the next problem comes up because then <laughs> each of us speaks in our own tongue. And of course, we too need to make each other intelligible to each other, need to make ourselves intelligible to each other, which is to say our speech is, has to be legible. Our speech has to be written. Mm. Yeah, there has to be, in order to communicate effectively, there has to be some sort of common ground. Mm-hmm. And thus, just that, yeah. And it's it's like that common ground creates the the trap that yeah. we're we're circling around here. That's exactly it, right? And it's it goes into all our kinds of other communication systems as well. You know, um, uh, sign language, for example, um, notoriously half spoken and half written uh, a language, but nonetheless normed, nonetheless subject to iterative. Uh, dynamics, because again, it has to be legible in the sense that there has to be a specific core to each symbol, and that core has to be repetitive. It has to be able to be repeated in order to be understood. So mm. it's written. It's a written language. All language is written, uh, and so by the with the same token that we can say all thought needs to be speech in order to be understandable and, and legible and intelligible. So all speech needs to be writing in order to be understandable and intelligible and legible, such that ultimately what we do when we speak is we write. And we write to each other, but we also write each other. Because, of course, we have expectations as to each other's responses. There's a socially permissible range of replies to any given question, and so on and so forth. Hmm. You bring up the term in your book, I'm not sure... D-E-I-X-I-S. Deixis? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Yeah, I, I call it Deixis uh, with, a, oh. with a strong X. I'm not sure if that's the original way it's supposed to be pronounced. It's a Greek term originally. Okay. Um, 
Uh, Greek is not a language that I speak. So I just pronounce it in my mother tongue, which is German. And so, yeah, Dixis is kind of the, is a marker. It's a sort of preliminary marker for the opposite of authoritarian iteration. So if you, if you think of a sort of a scenario, which is, which is obviously a bit idealized, but if, if you think of a sort of scenario where you're in a really dense forest kind of environment, um, or this, this could also be the, the exact opposite. It could also be an urban, urban jungle, you know, sort of urban decay kind of thing. But if we stick with the forest, I think it's more, it's more obvious. It's not entirely clear where the one plant ends and where the next begins. Mm-hmm. And you sort of, you sort of have to, to, to sort of grope your way through it uh, to find out, to find out where to go. And so you, you create the divisions, you create the, the separations of the sections. And in doing so, um, if, we, if we assume that we're just sort of standing still in the middle of that forest, there's an activity that has to come first before we start sort of uh, poking around and figuring out where the one plant ends and where the other one begins. And that activity is to, is to find out, is to sort of create a mental grid of what plants there are, where they are, and presumably also how dangerous they are. I mean, I'm not a botanist, so I would be hopelessly lost there. But, you know, you also kind of have to find out if there's any danger or not. And so you have to, you have to sort of make a mental map in your mind of what kinds of entities, what kinds of objects you're looking at at any given point. And so deixis is my term, a sort of a placeholder term for the moment before that. When we originally perceived the forest as almost a unified whole, and then we start piecing it up, but right before we start piecing it up, we're talking about deixis. Yeah. Gotcha. That's exactly right. And so the, the idea there is that deixis marks the moment before writing, the moment outside of writing, the moment before I have established where the one plant ends and the other begins. In other words, before I have written the plant into this particular world into this particular um, expanse that's in front of me. There's a pure directedness. The woods are something that I face, right? There's a sort of a, a directedness on the part of my body, which is to a certain extent pre-conscious, but also to a certain extent conscious, because of course we are perceiving the lights and the shadows. We are perceiving the sounds. We're perceiving the smells um, that are coming out of, out of this particular um, environment. And Deixis sort of marks the marks the the place where I begin to delineate a world for myself. And so, to a to a very significant extent, I think Deixis is something that we all experience whenever we um, whenever we enter new situations uh, that we haven't entered before, whenever we enter, even, even in the most mundane way, if we, if we head to places that we've never been before, if we enter a room that we've never been in before, we immediately start scanning the room, but there is a moment before the scan, which is a deictic moment, which is a moment where we are not quite certain yet which surface is which object, which light is refracted off of what particular part of the room, what smell belongs to whom or what. And, you know, what if we if we sort of take the everyday situation where I, I'm, I'm entering a room with a lot of people in it, I have no idea who's talking 
at the mm. moment. And so there's just this mass of, of sound that washes over me. And it's this sort of movement of washing over me. That's sort of what the term, excuse me, that's sort of what the term the X is, is trying to capture. I had this image of like, like waking up, like literally waking up from sleep and that there's a, a moment before things start to crystallize where it's more fluid and, and formless. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And that kind of brings up maybe the psychedelic experience where you kind of break a lot of that structure and it becomes more, more fluid and formless. And where do we go from there? Well, so that's, that's the thing, right? Is the, the, if we are accepting that writing in and of itself carries a moment of authoritarian iteration, and that this authoritarian iteration is generalizable and that it is, in fact, the, the way that not only letters are written, but things are written, then the Ixis marks what is what used to be what is to be postulated outside of the way that it's written. So the world that we that we encounter now is a world that is largely produced, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it, all of it is produced at this point. There's practically nothing left of so-called first nature. Um, all of it is all of it is produced, uh, and this means that all of it is sort of brought to us in chunks that are pre-written, pre-packaged, pre-set up. And of course, we who live in the the capitalist north are are all too familiar with with you know capital sort of presenting the whole world to us. If we are to if we are to dismantle this, and this is where where I think we should we ought to be headed. If we are to dismantle this, then we have to try and get to a point where our own approach to the world resembles Teixis more than writing, where we don't try to grasp and make sense in the way that we make things legible, that we make things you know, usable, that we package them, that we put them into small chunks, and try to live in a world that is uh, less rigid, more unformed, or more like that moment when you, when you wake up or when... Uh, or the psychedelic moment where the, the communication lines in your head sort of break down and there's a, there's a temporary, temporary notion um, that, it's, that things, are, things are not quite opaque, things are not quite well-defined, things are not quite fixed. Now, we've said that, and I think, I think this is something that, that needs to be taken into, into account there, because traditionally, of course, and this is where the reference to the psychedelic experience comes in as well. Traditionally, one would say, okay, if we do this, we can abandon writing, we, we go, we retreat into speech, we retreat into thought, we retreat into experiences, but those aren't generalizable um, in their full impact uh, without writing them again, without going back into speech and going back into writing. So that's a dead end, as, as far as I can see. Um, so what, what remains really is to try and unlearn uh, the gestures by which we classify, and again, this is to say by which we write um, objects in the way that, that we are writing them right now, in, in the way that they are sharply defined, that they have edges and boundaries and corners, and that they are well-written and that they are legible. Um, and my sort of attack on the Latin alphabet, uh, sort of the attempt to create, and not just the Latin alphabet, the other, the predecessors as well, 
um, the attempt to, to break through really to a kind of writing that is open to a sort of to the deixis of the letters themselves, that is open to the letters themselves being something that is outside of iteration, something that is before iteration. If if we are to, I think if if we sort of if we use the this kind of anti-alphabet, as I call it, um, toward moving or or, or to generalize it and, and sort of develop ways of living into the world that take that more into account then we can sort of approach stakes as a little a little more and we can undo a lot of the you know a lot of the boring drab nonsense that we are sort of subject to in our daily lives mm-hmm. as you're speaking there it occurred to me that and i don't know if i believe this or not but to the extent that the human nervous system craves this structure if if that is true then it seems like something that's going to be hard to escape from yeah, and this is this is a bit of a it's an interesting question because on the one hand you could say okay uh, maybe it's not the human nervous system that craves this maybe it's just the nervous system of those who crave that kind of thing that has been observed so far right obviously the, the ones that are doing the observing are doing so in specific milieus you know academic tenure for all of its for all of its advantages does stifle a lot of the sort of creativity that people approach things with. So that would be sort of the easy way out to to say, okay, all right, I'm going to take this Molotov and I'm going to throw it into the university building, and then that's you know that's all good. Uh, nobody nobody gets to nobody gets to to have their brain scanned anymore. We're we're good now. But that's a little too easy, right? That's the same. That would be essentially doing the same as saying, okay, we can just retreat into speech and thought, and that's it. It seems to me that. Um, to the ex- to what extent the brain the brain sort of craves this kind of order this kind of structure is a secondary question because the the writing of the world or the writing of entities in the world from my perspective from the sort of cognitive perspective or epistemological perspective is a secondary activity because the world is first and foremost produced and only then perceived. Mm. And so the 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 sort of change, and and I will admit this is something that I'm that I've developed that I'm developing now. You know, this sort of a, a after the the book, um, there's a there's another one in the works at the moment. Uh, the the idea there is that the world that we inhabit right now is a world that is, as I said, that is produced um, by a, a, a sort of a type of machinery that is all based on the idea that the that a repetition of specific products is the exact way to go right so the the world that we live in is foremost a world of things and a, a world of commodities that are not iterated because they're repeated there's no iteration there are, there are no aberrations any aberration is is thrown out the window it ends up in the landfill or it, it just gets melted down or what have you so we live in a world where where we're not just dealing with with a sort of an iterative scenario where we're facing the woods and we we try to unlearn isolating trees and shrubs out of the woods what we're currently facing is a world where it's not a question of having trees iterating other trees it's a question of of facing smartphones and facing cars and facing houses that are all quite literally the same uh, mm-hmm. or, or or whose parts are quite literally repeating each other. 
And so one of the one of the bigger things to me that would need to be tackled before talking about um, whether the brain craves these kinds of structures, and it is, of course, you know, I, I, I obviously there's always the possibility that that is um, that is just flat out the case, and in that case, obviously the the project would need to change. But before before we get to that, the the more important question is a question of machinery and a question of sort of technology, uh, technological constraints, economic constraints, um, where, of course, mass production of identical things is the most economic way of producing under capitalism. To what extent it's also the most economical way of producing things or the most useful way of producing things is a question that would be decided differently in a different society. This brings up the question to me of, of how much of our world is is created by our consciousness and how much of the world creates our consciousness. You know, maybe it's a circular iterative process. Um, maybe the answer is both. I don't know what your thoughts are. But. That that's actually that's actually where I where I would have headed as well. Is I think it's it is both. Um, and that's why you're you're quite right to say that it's a circular iterative process, which is which is again why I think the term iteration is such a good way of of dealing dealing with this particular kind of thing, because the chair that I'm sitting on, the desk that my laptop is sitting on, and the laptop itself, are produced things that are repeating other produced things, uh, literally, because it's all Ikea, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so it's literally all <laughs> exactly the same, minus assembly uh, assembly issues. So th there's, the, there's the repetitive aspect where the machinic production of these goods is something that is starkly present to me, that is presented to me, that presents itself to me, um, and that structures the room, that structures the world that I'm currently that I'm currently in, but at the same time, a chair is only a chair if I behave toward it as though it was a chair. Mm. I can also use it for other things. I can use it as a club. I can use it to, you know, as a theater prop. I can use it as an art object. Um, I can use it in various other ways. And in each of these cases, the gestures by which the chair's chairness is implemented are gestures that I actively pursue. So in that sense, it's not so it's not just the chair that presents itself to me, but it's also me that presents the chair to itself. So it's not just the the excuse me that this chair, this desk, and this computer replicate or sorry repeat other chairs, other desks, and other computers that are somewhere else that they're repeated by the machine in its production, but I also behave to this chair largely in the way that I behave to other chairs. And so in the day-to-day, -day, the chair's chairness, the desk's deskness, and what have you are active and ongoing processes between myself and the world. And in that sense, it's then my actions, my gestures that generate the world. And arguably, of course, on, on the basis of those is my perception and my cognition. And so that would be where we where we get into this sort of realm of consciousness and definitely with the dx's level we would be in the realm of consciousness because it's the moment before i behave to it as a chair before i behave to it as a desk yeah you use the the phrase and i'm paraphrasing but unlearning the gestures of classification and in your book you had this phrase that stuck out to me only the body and how it acts can change 
which struck me, um, it speaks to me about embodiment. And I don't know if that's what you had in mind, but that's where my mind goes. And I'm wondering if you uh, might say a little about that. Yeah, there's a there's a sort of materialist um, approach for me that sort of goes that goes through all of it because and this and this is one of the this is one of the reasons why I'm, I haven't really explored this sort of uh, the sort of consciousness aspects of this a whole lot so far. Um, what I'm what I'm sort of focusing on largely and in, and also intuitively mostly focus on is the 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 social level where we where we implement each other where we implement things where we implement plants implement animals in a in a sort of a social way and the way we do this is always gestural and it's always physical even even when we speak to each other it's a it's a series of gestures you know the tongue larynx pharynx that whole apparatus that sort of goes into speaking those are all gestures um, and those are and those are all physical gestures and um, likewise body language uh, you know the, those are all sort of physical gestures written into time and space in a sort of material way um, and this this that's essentially what I meant this embodiment is what I meant when I said uh, it is only the body that can change um, because again if we if we if we assumed otherwise if we were to say okay my thinking can change independently of a sort of bodily or gestural implementation of how my thinking has changed, then what I'm doing is I'm isolating a level of thought, which is independent. And you can see where this is headed, right? They can sort of this, it's independent of speech. It's independent of writing. It's independent of our bodies. We go back to the old, most classical of all classical gestures in Western philosophy, where the thinking is what makes the world and there's no world without thinking, and therefore, changing thinking is sufficient for changing the world. Mm. It's a it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, an unfair way of phrasing this because, of course, people who say that changing the thought changes the world don't really mean to say that we just sit there and we think things differently, and all the, you know, you know, global warming and what have you will simply disappear. Um, it's not that's not the sort of what most people think. But when you look at the structure of the argument, you're buying a lot more than you think you're buying when you say or when one says that the structures of consciousness, if changed, will structure uh, will change the structures of the world. They do. They will. But only if it's implemented, only if we act on it. Right. There's something about the written word just leads us down this path of abstraction that goes further and further. We lose the nonverbal communication and the, even just the felt sense of being in relationship as we're communicating with another person. And so bringing that back into our bodies is a way of uh, breaking the abstraction. But mostly because it keeps it at the level of writing things into the world, right? Writing gestures into the world. Because otherwise, what else is there to change? Uh, consciousness sort of consciousness is there to change, but the change has very little efficacy unless it's implemented through our bodies and in our bodies. And again, the extreme other opposite end, um, if we were to go ahead and change, literally just change the way we write, 
you know, we were, if we were to go from the Latin alphabet to the Greek alphabet or from the Greek alphabet to Cyrillic or from Cyrillic to Korean or what have you, that wouldn't achieve anything either because the, the rules of legibility, the authoritarianism of iteration would still be and we sort of uh, switch gears slightly here. I'm thinking about uh, William Burroughs and his cut-up technique specifically and how he um, uses that as a way to break the structure of the written word. Yeah, that's how it started out. Um, the For me, the, the way of the sort of method of thinking about this, I, I did a lot of cut-ups and fold-ins before it occurred to me to, to, essay, to essay the letter itself. It was interesting, too, because I discovered asymmetric writing after uh, I got into I got interested in in cut ups and fold ins uh, of text. It's interesting, mostly because I think Burroughs kind of has it right, but he's not going far enough. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of a lot of what Burroughs does, it seems to me with the cut ups in any case, or cut ups and fold ins in any case, is what he calls breaking automated word lines. And um, there's this sort of idea that when you change, and it, this, it's, very, it's very, really very close to, to the way I'm thinking about it, but um, I think not quite far enough. The, the idea seems to me, the way I read it, it seems to me that if you change the context of terms, if you change the context of words, if you change their juxtapositions, you can you can generate reality effects. You can sort of change the composition of reality, and in in the sense that I get the sense that a lot of it sort of goes through the route of saying, okay, we change the the lines on the page, therefore we change our consciousness, therefore we change our perception of the situation, therefore we change the situation. There's a sort of an idea there that I think is very promising, um, but that doesn't sufficiently take into account that there's a step between the changing the consciousness of the situation and changing the situation itself. Um, and that that step is a written step, is a, is a step in which we write the situation itself. Um, because for Burroughs, I think there's an overlap between changing the automated word lines on the page in his novels and changing automated word lines through tape recordings. There's this beautiful passage in the in that interview volume. I think it's called the Job, uh, the the volume of interviews that he did. Um, there's this beautiful idea of injecting sound into environments and thereby changing people's uh, changing people's behavior. So there's a there's a sort of idea. I'm, I'm going to use a very drastic one, um, which I personally would never ever ever do, but. It's a very drastic one, a very drastic example. If you were to go to a, um, you know, a, a Christmas market or anything where a lot of people are at any given point, it's very easy to cause panics. You simply, you simply sort of play the right sounds, the kinds of sounds that everyone knows from movies, explosion sounds or weaponry sounds or what have you. And essentially, people are going to start running right away. Now, I don't know to what extent this actually works because I don't think that anyone has ever tried this, unfortunately not. <laughs> and uh, uh, rest assured, in case the FBI is listening, I don't intend to do this either. <laughs> uh, but um, there's, a sort of a, there's a sort of a curious way in which this plays out because in that sense, the way the, the injection of the sound does change people's behavior quite drastically and pretty much automatically and right away. But 
the word automatically there indicates where the problem is, I think, and where Burroughs, mm. I think, doesn't quite go far enough because what he's tapping into is not a, a destruction of the automated word lines. He's just exchanging one set for another. He's just causing a panic, essentially. People are still acting like robots. People are still acting in the same way. They're still iterating each other's responses, catastrophically so in that example. And that sort of, that doesn't, get us anywhere in terms of the anti-authoritarian impulse because it doesn't make people realize how artificial the situation is that they're in. It simply activates another automated response for them. And it's extra curious too, because when you think about the kinds of sounds that you would have to use for this kind of panic to, to ensue, there's a very specific kind of sound. And as far as I know, I have read up on this because I found it interesting. As far as I know, the sounds that you would use would have to be the sounds from movies, not the sounds that these weapons make in real life, which are quite different from movie sounds. Machine guns, for example, I'm told, not that I myself have ever used one, but machine guns, I'm told, sound quite differently in reality, quite a lot louder and quite a lot less distinct um, than they do in movies. So what you would have to do is you would have to inject a kind of sound or a kind of, of automated response or trigger a kind of automated response that is based on a further layer of unreality, a further layer, further mm. removed from the humanity of the people that you're subjecting to this particular kind of experiment. So what you're injecting really is not breaking automated response lines. It's essentially just turning the movie into a replication of, uh, sorry, the scene into a Freudian slip there, the scene into a replication of the movie um, such that, you know, nature imitates art and all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that to me, that speaks to just using a sound that people are already familiar with. Versus if you used real machine gun fire, maybe some military veterans would, would or active military would, would recognize and respond, but most of us would not necessarily. That's interesting. Yeah, so you, you sort of inject a repetition. You inject an, uh, a repeated yeah. sound of something that people will recognize, and you turn mm -hmm. the situation into a situation that plays out according to a very repetitive playbook you know, the, the anti-terror playbook, essentially. So really, I think what you would do, and again, this is a very drastic example, but really what I think you would do is you would have to use sounds and you would have to use recordings that are familiar to people that are already repeated, that are already iterations of what's there, which is to say they're already overwritten by the authoritarianism that guarantees their legibility in that, any, in that given situation. You gotcha. couldn't just go back and, and use recordings of, say, you know, if I were to play a gramophone recording of what things used to, you know, uh, bird choruses, for example, dawn choruses of birds. If I were to go back and use a, presuming there is such a thing, uh, if I were to miraculously find a gramophone recording of what the dawn chorus sounded like 200 years ago, when there were a lot more birds than there are now, people might not recognize it for what it is. They might think, they're, they're probably going to think that this is not a natural sound. This is something that I've created using all sorts of you know, effects, echoes, and, and what have you. And so what people are, I think, I think a measure of the malaise that we're in is to what extent we are 
not even uh, prepared anymore to recognize naturally occurring sounds and noises as what they really are. We're, we're sort of automatically primed to go to the repetitive registers that are coming out of the machine. What's interesting to me is, or I don't know, what's curious to me is if we were to cut up those sounds that we're like a machine gun sound and cut that up and play it, what kind of uh, effect that might have. Kind of circling back to the original Burroughs thing, it, it seems to me Burroughs uh, with the cut up and fold technique was breaking down the structure of a sentence in a way. And what you're proposing is is like just breaking down all the way to the core of what the alphabet is as a, as a way to kind of decondition or de-domesticate us maybe i love that you use that word domestication um, yeah there's there's a sort of a i mean the breaking breaking each individual word sort of comes sort of really i think really gets us to the to the core of it because when we break the word when we break the word's integrity we also break the sentence we also break the syllable and we also break those sorts of things and more importantly what we break now that we live in the computer age is we also break the way that computing machines implement specific characteristics of the Greek and Latin alphabet that most of us who are just users of computers never even think about. Um, namely, that there is this sort of disconnect between the letters on the, on the page and the elements that they refer to, the things that they refer to. Because otherwise, computation couldn't work. Computation requires that you have a, a, a clear separation between the symbols that are handled on the tape and their so-called meaning, which is irrelevant to the machine, which happens at input and at output, and that's it. When you go further, and this of course is a technological issue where Burroughs just didn't live in a computerized world yet. Um, so he couldn't, I mean, he might've gone the same way if, if he was alive now. The, if you if you go all the way to sort of challenging computing machines for what they are, you have to go back and challenge the symbols that are on the tape. And that again brings us to challenging the, the alphabetic uh, implementation. So it's not just the alphabet on the page that I'm that I'm sort of challenging. It's the it's the lettered way in which all things are sort of implemented in and around us. But it just so happens that by the process of writing letters on the page makes this sort of renders this vulnerable because it's immediately and directly doing the very thing that everything else does indirectly sort of behind our backs uh, implements itself or is implemented through us behind our backs. And so if, if we were to attack, say, um, the, the letters that are on the page or the way that we generate the letters on the page, we can, I think, develop a, a set of gestures that allow us to assay everything else as well in much the same way, because the mechanism is the same. Right. This just occurred to me. I'm wondering what you think of um, what I'll call meme culture. You know, this kind of uh, development of expression through memes. And is that taking us further from what we're talking about? Or does that bring us closer to Deaxis. It's an interesting one because it, it sort of it does both, right? In much the same way that iteration contains both this sort of repetition element and this renewal element, um, you know, creativity element. 
So the meme brings us, uh, I think, a step closer back to the sort of hieroglyphic stage where we're, where we're uh, discussing in symbols, where we're not just talking about symbols, but we are actually talking in symbols these days, right? Emojis and what have you. Um, so it, it, it does, def I think it definitely goes one step toward, um, and an important step toward introducing Dexis on the screen itself. Because the same thing happens when you, um, and this is probably more something that happens to, you know, old fogies, uh, so to speak. But um, there's a sort of a deictic element of seeing these things for the first time, which is similar to the deixes of waking up in the morning. There's a there's a sort of so so you're you're now constantly um, so to a certain extent constantly uh, bombarded with deixes. Uh, and bombarded with something that you first have to overwrite by your own registers to make it legible for yourself. But in turn, and again, this is sort of, you know, there's a sort of, I hesitate to use the word dialectical because it's thrown around a lot, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of this sort of back and forth um, in the argument. In turn, a meme can only go so far because of course a meme is reliant on the same automated response lines that the sounds are, when we're disrupting our Christmas market, um, mm. a meme a meme has to hit me uh, with with something that I already know, with something that's already legible. It has to repeat something. It has to iterate something that's already familiar to me. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And I and I concur that of course this is to a certain extent unavoidable. Um, you know, there's no. I'm not trying to to say that we that we can get rid of this sort of writtenness of reality altogether, um, but. There's a way of reducing it. And I think memes are going in that direction because they introduce more DXs on our screens, but they're also removing us in much the same way that um, anything is removing us that happens on the screen because it's so much repeated and because it's so standardized and because it's so uncreative in the sense that there is maybe creativity in what's being expressed, but there's no creativity in the expression itself. Mm. Much in the much in the way that if you look at a printed text, what is expressed in the printed text is creative, but the the marks themselves, the letters themselves, are repetitions of one another. Right. Fascinating discussion. Um, are there any questions I haven't asked you that you'd like to be asked? Well, there is there is one there is one thing that I, that sort of. Um, that's sort of at the very end of the of the little booklet that I think is is important um, to sort of take away when it comes to the the way that the anti alphabet works, um, because it's you know the what we've done so far is we sort of traced it back from Latin to Greek, from Greek Phoenician, Phoenician to Egyptian hieroglyphs, and that's all in there. But then the last step is sort of um, one way the that um, really blows this whole thing up. I think. What really blows it up is, is this last step, which is that the letters, the signs and symbols of the anti-alphabet become animals and plants on mm. the page. And so the animals kind of write themselves literally because the hieroglyphs that I use, some of those are animals. Um, and there is one sign that's not in the hieroglyphic language that's also an animal. I forget which one it is at the moment. But then what I do as a sort of a last step is I turn all the other signs and symbols that are on the page into plants that surround the animals. Um, and the way I do this in practice right now is I, I give them roots. I draw roots on them, uh, on these letters. 
what this does then, this last step is it's a sort of a it remains legible in that each of the symbols that's on the page has a specific meaning in the Latin alphabet. So the original sentence that's on the page remains legible, but it also sort of invites us and really, I think, prompts and prods us to consider that each of these animals on the page is an animal in much the same way that the animal out there is an animal. And each of these letters is a plant in much the same way that the plant out there is a plant. And so I think what the what this last step does is it it sort of it makes the letters of the anti-alphabet dissolve themselves and bring us back into this deixis of the world that surrounds us, that can surround us, that used to once surround us and can surround us again. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I was struggling a bit with that part of the book, but what I'm hearing is the use of animals and plants sort of uh, invokes this fluid living form or yeah this this kind of breaks the structure so to speak fantastic all right is there there anything else you have uh, an interesting variety of, of books that you've written if one on computer code i believe and it's you mentioned you're working on another project is there anything else you'd like to turn us on to at this time there is another there's another book in the works it's also with arden press um so it'll also be distributed through little black heart uh, probably early next year, and it's a it's a sort of a follow up to this one. It takes the anti alphabet to into state theory. Um, it develops more of a sociology of what we've talked mm -hmm. about, the sort of iterative thing, the sort of iterative way that gestures implement social reality. Um, and I will also be talking about machines and computations. So I'll be tackling this whole mm -hmm. product, you know, the produced world versus the the sort of consciousness world that we spoke about earlier. That, uh, that should come out um, early next year. And there is, uh, there's an article in the next issue of Oak Journal. Okay. Um, so that should be, I think that is number, that would be number five. It should come out sometime early next year as well, I think. Um, and where, what I'm doing there is I'm taking the anti-alphabet and I'm applying it to the question of time. Mm. To what extent is time written and to what extent can we unwrite the sort of bourgeois time that we are all subject to and that says that it is this much a clock at the moment to what extent can we unwrite this if we if we um you you know using the anti-alphabet sort of as a prop time is kind of linear and structured and how can we make it more fluid or yeah something something along those lines you know there's there's the sort of idea that and there's a lot of lot about this, this sort of sociology and phenomenology of time, and I'm I'm conversant with a lot of the classical philosophers for this one. Um, the idea that lived time is different from produced time, or that there's a sort of a, you know, that the 24-hour clock has nothing to do with our with our rhythms, which is patently obvious to everybody, um, and yet seems to be something that that is very well hidden, or that is very, you know, the implications of this are very well hidden. And so I think, in, in sort of in short, the the argument is that uh, the mechanism by which we implement things, by which we write things, is the same mechanism by which we implement time. Um, because much like the Turing machine, we can only ever print one symbol at a time on the tape. And so we ourselves are only ever zigzagging between different foci when we, as we sort of move through our world. And that zigzag is essentially what structures the phenomenon of time. 
Mm. And so the, the idea there is to, if we change the zigzag, if we change the, the reading of the world, we can change the way time works out for us, whether that's in consciousness or gestural, but it, it, sort, of, it sort of brings us a little closer to what I think you know, the world ought to be. Fascinating. I look forward to reading that. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Well, Sasha, I uh, greatly appreciate your time. I really enjoyed our conversation today. So did I. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to Sasha Engel for taking the time to chat. Thank you to Christina Pearson of the Robert Anton Wilson Trust and Richard Ross of Hilaritas Press. And thank you to Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. Our next episode, releasing on the 23rd of March, will feature Eric Wagner on Ezra Pound. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor e Hilaritas.